you know, push up to the front. Or, I think it says front, doesn't it? Hey, James, James, help us on this, would you? We're trying to throw the uh, playback, yeah, from, uh, yeah, there we go. Okay, now we got it. Yeah, as you're turning to Matthew 14, let me share some statements guaranteed to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Okay? Whoever coined the phrase, quite as a mouse, has obviously never stepped on a mouse. Uh, number four, a man quit his job last week because of illness and fatigue. He was sick of his boss, and his boss was tired of him. Illness and fatigue, sick and tired. Uh, why do Americans choose between only two people to be president, but between 50 people to be Miss America? Now, Jane, does that make sense? Stupid. A uh, Baptist deacon once said, worrying must work. And I know that because at least 90% of the things I worry about never actually happen. So, it just, it's got to be good. And then finally, uh, if it's true the early bird gets the worm, somebody needs to tell the worms they've got to stop getting up so early. Right? Yeah, you know what? Um, deep down in the human spirit, God has placed a desire to worship. In other words, all of us have like a God-shaped vacuum in the depth of our soul uh, that cries out to be filled. But apart from the grace of God and salvation in Christ, people end up trying to fill that vacuum with, with something else or someone else, uh, including a lot of distorted versions of God. Well, today in uh, Acts 14, 1-18, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas interact with the major false religion of their day, which was Greek-Roman paganism, uh, the worship of flawed human-like superheroes, lowercase g's. And as we do that, we're going to emphasize that for Lori McCann or for Scott Postlewaite or for Brad McCoy, the only legitimate capital C celebrity in our lives should be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize none of us are, are tempted to worship Zeus or Hermes or any of the gods of the Greek pantheon. But, you know, we have our own objects of veneration, both secular and, and religious, don't we? Uh, our favorite uh, preacher or band or actor or politician or actress or whatever it might be. People try to fill that God-shaped vacuum with human beings. And that's always a bad thing. Because in God's eyes, all Christians, including Billy Graham, are just servants. They're not really supposed to be celebrities. I mean, your favorite Christian musician, your favorite Christian actor, your favorite Christian politician, pastor, author, conference speaker, missionary, all, all of those people in God's program are just servants. They're not supposed to be celebrities. And I think we get into big trouble when we put people on pedestals because they either disappoint us or we end up being obsessed with something other than what we're supposed to be worshiping. So we're going to see principles along those lines today in Acts 14, 1 through 18. But uh, before we dive into that passage, let's uh, pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word. And as always, want to pray for our uh, 
military, our peace officers, and our firefighters. And uh, Joe Franks, uh, I want you to pray for us in that uh, direction, okay? Joe, appreciate that. Uh, we start the, uh, golly, the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. And so we come up with this uh, saying, Jesus is alive as head of his bride. And each one of those letters represents the major theme of each chapter. So let's review that since we're starting. 14 chapters, there's only 28 chapters, so guess what, we're like halfway through the book now. What what happened basically in chapter 1 of the book of Acts? Jesus ascended to heaven. He died for our sins on Good Friday. Three days later, what happened? Resurrection, right? What happened 40 days after that? Ascension. Jesus ascended back to heaven. That's Acts chapter 1. What happened in chapter 2? The establishment of the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost. I would go from Old Testament to New Testament. Old Covenant to New Covenant. No more sacrificing animals. All the animal sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ. Now we don't have faith in a promised Savior. We have faith in a provided Savior, right? What, is, uh, what happened in chapter chapter 3 of the book of Acts? Peter and John healed this, uh, this uh, lame man who had been begging in front of the temple for decades. And that would have been a huge shout out to the city of Jerusalem, that something very special was happening. Chapter 4, unleashing a persecution against the church. Uh, Peter and John are arrested, held overnight, and told not to say anything to anybody about this Jesus person. And they just straight up and said, hey, we can't do that. We, just, we won't do that, just so you'll know. They politely uh, demonstrated a nonviolent resistance to the powers that be. What happened in chapter 5? We have sin in the church. The only thing worse than external persecution is internal corruption in the church. And we have Ananias and Sapphira claiming to be something they're not. And uh, sin in the church, and it has to be processed. Chapter 6, we have the influence of David Demerson and Mike Palavik, people like that, James Mitchell, the influence of devoted deacons. You can also call chapter 6 food fight because the widows were not getting, some of the widows, the Hellenistic widows, were not getting the food they uh, were promised by the church rapidly enough, so they kind of got upset. And the apostles said, hey, uh, we've got our tasks to do, so we're not going to serve the food because we've got other things we've got to do, but we'll make sure the church, do the deacons, take care of that issue. What happened in chapter 7? Very pivotal event in the history of the church. We've got the first Christian martyr. Who was the first Christian martyr? Stephen, who was one of the first deacons. Uh, he... Uh, was hassled in the temple. He got up and basically summarized the Old Testament completely pointing to Jesus Christ and said, he's it. And uh, the population got so angry they threw stones at him until he was dead. That's a horrible way to die. Chapter 8, Abroad with Philip. Um, of course, Jack Smith says, what was her name? But uh, you shouldn't do stuff like that, Jack Smith. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're talking about, we're outside of the city of Jerusalem, and Philip in Samaria. What do you know about Samaria, Bryce? The Jews were too spiritual uh, to hang out with the Samaritans because they had spiritual cooties. God didn't think like that, but they did. So he goes right into the center of Samaria, preaches the gospel. They believe in Christ as Samaritans and are saved. Then he goes to the uh, road just outside of Gaza, interacts with an African Ethiopian uh, government official, shares the gospel of Jesus to, with him, and he believes in Christ and is saved. So we're, this gospel is much bigger 
than the old wineskins of the Old Testament law, isn't it? Uh, next chapter, chapter 9. This is really important. Life comes to Saul slash Paul, Sherry. This is the Apostle Paul who writes 13 New Testament books. What did he do for a living prior to becoming a Christian? Tent maker. But what kind of mission was he on under the Sanhedrin's guidance? Yeah, he was a Christian persecutor. Right. And he had a very dramatic conversion, and that was a huge... uh uh, dynamic milestone in the history of the church. In chapter 10, Peter takes the gospel, that we've seen the gospel taken to Samaritans, we've seen the gospel taken to black Africans, now we're seeing the gospel taken to Roman Gentiles. Peter goes to the Roman soldier, remember the Roman soldiers are occupying Israel, uh, Cornelius and his family preaches Jesus Christ, of him all, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins. And you know what happened when Peter said that? They all believed Jesus was the Savior and they all got the, the gift of salvation, which was very controversial because the home office in Jerusalem wasn't quite sure that Gentiles could just believe in Jesus and get saved. The assumption was exact. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. The Jews were always distinguished from the Gentiles. So since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, of course Jews could believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. But Gentiles couldn't just believe in the Jewish Messiah, Solomon, and be saved. Gentiles had to become Jews first by submitting to circumcision in the Old Testament law, and then they could pre-qualify and believe and be saved. But that's not the way it works, is it? No. Is that how the Samaritans got saved? Is that how the Ethiopian eunuch got saved? No. Is that how Cornelius got saved? So we have in chapter 11, verification of Gentile salvation, talking about Cornelius and his family. Chapter 12, we saw the stoning of Stephen. Now we've got the first apostle is executed. We have the execution of James in Acts 12, 1 and 2, and then the arrest of Peter, the most prominent apostle, and Sean, why did they arrest Peter? They've, they've executed James, the apostle. Now they arrest Peter the Apostle, what are they going to do to him? They're going to kill him too, aren't they? But he's supernaturally delivered. And I've often said, I wonder what James's mom, Salome, thought after her son gets arrested and executed, but Peter gets arrested and supernaturally delivered. And I think what she thought was, God must have a different purpose for my boy than for Peter. And that's the way it works. God will give you everything you need to be or become everything he wants you to be. He won't necessarily give you everything you want, everything you think you need, but he'll give you everything you need so you can become in your character as a believer everything he wants you to be, gay, which is including how many seconds you need on this planet to do everything he wants you to do for him. And so James's purpose was complete, mission accomplished. He goes uh, to be with the Lord. Peter continues. Now, by the way, you guys know that Peter... Dodged that bullet, right, in Jerusalem, but he would end up being executed in Rome, crucified, upside down. So through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is alive as. Chapters 13 and 14 describe what we call the first missionary journey. We're beginning chapter 14 today. Chapter 13, we see the church in Antioch of Syria sending out missionaries. Who were the first three missionaries? Paul, Saul. Barnabas, and Mark, John Mark, remember? But at Perga of Pamphylia, John Mark uh, decided to go home to mom and quit right in the middle of the missionary journey. 
And then today in chapter 14, we're going to see synagogues attack Paul and Barnabas. Let's put the first missionary on the, uh, on the map, first missionary journey on the map. All the missionary journeys start at the church in Antioch, right there in Syria. Now down here off the map south is Jerusalem, right? And where Jesus uh, lived, Israel's down here off the map. But you go north. The point is, Bailey, the church is expanding. A lot of people, a lot of American Christians think America is the center of the modern church. The center of the modern church is much more in South America and Africa than it is in the United States right now as far as the dynamic evangelism rates and stuff like that. This is not an American religion. It transcends all the cultures. If you think God needs us, we we need him. He doesn't need us. (laughs) It is uh, so you'll know. Uh, he needed Jerusalem, but he can do stuff out of Antioch and Syria. But Paul, Barnabas, and Mark left Antioch, went to the coast, to Seleucia, went to Cyprus. That's cool, because Barnabas was from Cyprus. He knew the lay of the land. They marched across uh, Cyprus, going to the two major cities, preaching the gospel. Then they went up to Atalia, which was the port, and a couple miles inland, inland to Perga. What happened in Perga? Who left to go home to mom? Mark, right? Remember? But Paul and Barnabas went north across the Taurus Mountains to Antioch. We saw that last week. And then now we're going to be going to Iconium and Lystra, right in the middle of the first missionary journey today. Okay. And our passage breaks down like this. We're going to look at the first 18 verses, and they basically do three things. We're going to see the initial ministry of Paul and Barnabas sees a mixed response. Some people believe, some don't. Some love what they're saying. Some loathe what they're saying. That's always the way it is. The gospel is inherently controversial if you get specific enough, right? Number two. So that's verses one and two. The second thing in this passage we're going to see is months later, after this initial mixed response, so you have enemies in the city and friends in the city for Paul and Barnabas, after staying there many months, the enemies of the gospel actually plot to execute uh, Paul and Barnabas, but they leave town before it can happen. And we're going to see sometimes tactical retreats or tactical withdrawals are right in the middle of the will of God. You don't have to do a frontal assault on all the issues that come up in life. And then thirdly, we're going to see in verses 8 through 18, Paul and Barnabas refuse to be worshipped as celebrities, lowercase gods by the Greco-Roman pagans. Let's look first at verses 1 and 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. In Iconium, we were in Antioch because of persecution. They were forced out of town, so they're going back uh, to the east, uh, about a hundred miles. And in the city of Iconium, they, Paul and Barnabas, entered the synagogue. That's where the Jewish people met on Saturday to hear the uh, Old Testament taught, to pray and to sing. They entered the synagogue service of the Jews together, Paul and Barnabas did, and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people in the synagogue believed, both of Jews and of Greeks who were interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who attended the synagogue service that morning. But the Jews who disbelieved in that same synagogue stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren, the new Christians. That sounds like a pattern. We saw the same thing happen last week in the city of Antioch of uh, Pisidia. Go back to chapter 13, verse 36. Paul visits the synagogue. He's asked to say a few words, and he talks about the Old Testament plan that brought Jesus Christ into the world. 
And in verse 36 of chapter 13, Paul in the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own life, in his own generation, fell asleep, that's a euphemism for the death of a believer, and he was laid among his fathers, and his body underwent decay. Absent from the body, but his body undergoes decay. But he, the Messiah, the Christ, whom Paul had described earlier in the sermon, whom God raised up from the dead, did not undergo decay. David's greater son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was resurrected. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ the Savior, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, offered to you. Isn't that a wonderful word, forgiveness of sins? Don't have your sins forgiven? Boy, the day I got saved, I wanted my sins to be forgiven so much, man. I was under so much conviction. And we stand forgiven. God doesn't give you probation by faith, Derek. He gives you salvation by faith. He doesn't give you life until you sin again. He gives you eternal life when you believe. Through Him, let it be known to you that uh, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That is, through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. Anything that could be brought against you in a heavenly court of law through which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And drop down to verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out of the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, down the road from Iconium, uh, people kept begging them to come back the next Saturday and say more about this. Verse 43. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them that whole week, anticipating the next synagogue service, were, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So that's the good news there that when Paul first hit the first town, Michelle, some people believed and got really excited about the gospel. But you always have some who reject and who are opposing the gospel. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath in uh, Antioch, almost the whole city tried to cram into that synagogue. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul right in the middle of his remarks in the synagogue. And they were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly despite the opposition, said it's necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, Jewish folks in the synagogue, because you've got the Old Testament. You should be looking for Jesus to speak to you first. But since you repudiate it, and since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to turn exclusively to the Gentiles. Go down to verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence, and the leading men of the city of Antioch and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the county. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest and they went to Iconium. That's where we are in chapter 14. But the disciples in the city of Antioch continued with the joy of the Holy Spirit. People come and go. The faith goes right on. So that's verses 1 and 2. That leads us, that's our context where we just read. In Iconium, the next city down the road from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas entered the synagogue. A large number of people believed, but some didn't believe. Here's the thing. The gospel always has, had, always will have opponents. And the more you identify with Jesus Christ, the more you'll attract that kind of opposition. And it's inevitable. The gospel is inherently controversial. I'm a sinner? How dare you tell me I'm a sinner? I can't fix it. How dare you tell me I can't fix it by being nicer or more religious or do it myself. He's the only way. How dare you tell me he's the only way. 
The gospel has always been opposed by some, and increasingly the gospel is being defined as hate speech. So beware. But what did Jesus say about this? In Luke 6.26, he said, about the opposition we attract inherently, if we believe and live out and share the gospel, Bryce, to the extent you're identified with Jesus Christ, some people aren't going to like it. Uh, but Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. If you're pleasing everybody, you can't be too identified with the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel of Jesus Christ antagonizes some people. Now, we don't have to go out, our, of, out of our way to be obnoxious, uh, right? And I think some people almost do that as a, you know, as a mark of honor. But uh, that's, not, that's not right. Uh, in the upper room, Jesus says, When the world hates you, no, it hated me before it hated you. The reason it hates you, as you identify with me, is because ultimately it hates me, right? And then uh, I would say this is one of those promises in the Bible nobody wants to claim. In Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. That word thalipsis means pressures, problems, even persecution, pain, agony. That's part of the human condition. And the more we identify with Christ in a culture that no longer sees that as a good thing, uh, the more we're going to attract opposition and uh and and uh persecution for sure so uh we arrive in town we have a mixed response now months later enemies of the gospel plot to kill execute paul and barnabas but the two men just walk out of town before it can happen look at verses three through seven therefore under those conditions where some of the city loves them and some of the city loathes them some of them uh think they're great and some think they're gross. Therefore, under those conditions, they, Paul and Barnabas, spent a long time there, several months, four or five months in the city of Iconium, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is testifying to the word of His grace, granting that apostolic signs and wonders were done by their hands. Paul's a capital A technical apostle. Anybody sent out on a mission can be referred to as a lowercase a apostle someone sent out on a mission and god was confirming this unique gospel of jesus christ in this pioneer missionary field with unique kind of miracles which is interesting because we're going to see no supernatural miracles that gets these guys out of town just uh, barely ahead of being stoned to death so god uses both miraculous and normal natural means to accomplish his purposes and watch this not everything that's supernatural is of God. Do you realize that? There's a dark side over there. Okay, Satan can reproduce many of the miracles of God. Re, uh, the magicians of Egypt, uh, Pharaoh, vis-a-vis Moses. He, he can't reproduce all of them, but he can do some things. So, just because something's supernatural doesn't mean it's of God. But God works through both supernatural and uh, non-supernatural, kind of normal means to accomplish his will. You know, which means you, you don't just sit home and pray, Lord, I've got to provide for my family. Please send me a check. Please send me a check. I believe you're going to send me a check. I really believe you're going to send me a check. Go out and check the, and that guy who prays that, he's too lazy to go check the mailbox. So he goes, hey, hey, Gertrude, get out there and go check the mailbox, you. Uh, I used to think, uh, you know, I, I still think the greatest invention of the 20th century was the remote control on the television set. Me, me and Ben are so old. You remember we only had three channels. And when I was four years old, I thought my name was Get Wood or Change the Channel. Because that's the only thing my father ever said to me, you know. He had to get up and change it, you know. So when we got this thing, you could push a button and change the channel. I thought that was the greatest invention 
Men of all time, yeah. So yeah, this guy prays, Lord, send me a check. I got faith you're going to send me a check. Gertrude, get up there and check the mailbox. He's not going to get out himself. That's not the way it works. Basically, how does God want us to provide for our family? Paul says if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers know baby needs a pair of shoes and you got to go find a job and you got to you know, earn an honest uh, dollar for an honest hours of work, you know, kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, watch this. Let's read verses 3 through uh, 7. But the Jews uh, who disbelieve are opposing Paul. But look at verse 3. Therefore they spent a long time speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. And in the, God was doing unique supernatural things through the apostolic hands of Paul. But the people of the city were still divided. Some people liked what the, they were talking about and some didn't. Some were embracing the gospel, some didn't. As uh, Mel will tell you, gospel is a word that means good news. It's not good news that you're a sinner and we're estranged from God, that's the black background against which the good news makes sense, right? But the good news is that Christ loved the world. He died for the sins of the world. Whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the city is still divided. It's only getting worse. Some, some sided with the Jewish opponents, some with the apostles. And when an attempt, verse 5, was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone Paul and Barnabas, that means throw rocks at them until they're dead. Horrible, terrible way to die. Ask Stephen when you see him in heaven. They're going to do that same thing now to Paul and Barnabas. They, Paul and Barnabas, became aware of it. They saw it on Facebook. The power of social media. right? Um, and they fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra and Derby and the surrounding region, and they continued to preach the gospel despite the opposition. So in the face of this increasingly severe opposition, when Paul and Barnabas find out they're plotting to stone uh, Paul and Barnabas, they just politely walk out of town and go down to the next city. They don't expect an angel to come take care of the problem. They don't say, we're just going to stand here and wait and let God just wipe out our enemies. They go from Iconium, where they're about to be stoned, down to the next city they can get to, which is Lystra. And quite often, this is the way God works. We, you know, God uh, expects us to do what we can, and then He'll do whatever else has to happen. And quite often, I don't think we even notice some of the stuff He does until we get to heaven. We get a PowerPoint presentation on "Here's when I was carrying you," kind of thing. Uh, some verses that I like along this regard is. Uh, I mean, you know, there, there have been Christians who have said, if you have enough faith, you won't buy insurance. If you have enough faith, you won't buckle your seatbelt. But then you know, the government helped us because once they made it a, a law, you have to buckle your seatbelt. Since Christians, Romans 13, are supposed to obey the law, now we can buckle our seatbelts. But if there wasn't a law, we wouldn't need to because God's going to take care of us. Uh, the same people who preach this word faith stuff, they all have bad toupees. They wear contact lenses or glasses, you know, but they're telling you, you if you have enough faith, you're not going to have any problems, you know. And it's not real. It's not the way the Bible is. I mean, just look at it. Uh, Nehemiah, when they're trying to rebuild the wall around the city, but they're surrounded by terrorists, he says, we prayed to our God and we put the guard out every night. We prayed for a safe trip and then we put our seatbelts on. It's the same thing. Well, if you're really trusting God, you don't need a seatbelt. Not according to every major passage in the Bible on this. Uh, right after uh, Saul came to faith, remember he's on the road to Damascus to persecute and kill Christians and then he comes to faith on the outskirts of the town and he goes in there and tries to connect with the Christians 
in Damascus and they can't hardly believe that he's really a Christian. And once it becomes clear to the Christians he's for real, the opposition party, the, uh, the, the opponents of the gospel now want to kill Paul so much so they've got to sneak him out of town by lowering out the city wall on a basket. Kind of humiliating for an apostle. I mean, he came into town on a white charger to take over the town. He gets saved on the outskirts of town, has to kind of sneak out of town at night so he doesn't get killed. Uh, why didn't God send an angel? He could, but typically until the angel comes, you better do what you can do. Uh, look at Daniel 3. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Tony Evans, who's a black Dallas Seminary graduate, great preacher, used to call uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. But see, a black preacher said that, so it's okay. And and my wife always wants me to disclaim that way, because otherwise it sounds bad. But uh, and I'm sure Ed Blount, who listens to all these, is laughing, because he's heard that before. But, yeah, you know... Um, Daniel 3, this is Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're supposed to bow down to this idol and worship the government. And they basically say, we can't do that. And they give them several chances because these guys are such good bureaucrats, they hate to lose them. And they say to the powers that be, in verse 17, uh, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from this furnace of blazing fire. And if it's his will, he'll deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we don't know what God's will is. Maybe this is the way we go to heaven. You know, boom, through the fire. We're not volunteering for it, but if you throw us in the fire, he may deliver us. But if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods, period, over and out. They're not presuming. They don't say, we have enough faith this can happen, so you can throw us in the fire and we won't get burned up. They're saying, hey, God could do that. God could do that. That's why, one cool thing about miracles, Aubrey, it's never too late for a miracle. No matter how bad it gets, it doesn't limit what God can do. But we don't presume on it. What was the temptation, what was the temptation where Satan told, uh, took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and said, hey, throw yourself down off the, the pinnacle of the temple. It's like a hundred foot off the ground. Uh, that'll be a good publicity stunt for you. It'll generate a lot of positive, uh, uh, advertisement for you because you know God's going to take care of you. He's going to send an angel to keep you from dying but from falling off the top of the pinnacle. So uh, you'll be fine. It'll just kind of generate a bunch of buzz about your ministry. What does Jesus say? No, you, sh- you, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. You should not presume, kind of force God's hand. This idea that if you have enough faith, if you can come conceive of any fool thing you want and you believe hard enough God's going to do it, He's got to come across... Would you let your kids blackmail you like that? Yeah, she's got six kids. She couldn't. If you only have one, you can't do that with kids. Why would he do that? But uh, you know, you get rich and famous. You write books about this stuff, but it doesn't work. I'm reminded of the old story about the Christian, the flood, and the faulty faith. This guy had a lot of faith, and he believed if he believed anything strong enough, God would give him what he wanted. So sure enough, here comes a flood in his neighborhood, and everybody else in the whole area evacuates, but not this guy. And the water's up to his roof. And he's praying and he's believing God's going to save him. And so here comes two guys in a rowboat. Says, get in, we'll save you. Says, I don't need it. God's going to take care of me. Fine. Okay. Water keeps rising. And now uh, it's up to his waist. Here comes a bigger boat, a power boat with a motor on it. A uh, National Guardsman in the boat. Says, get in the boat, we'll save you. I don't need it. God's going to save me. Okay. 
Water keeps rising. It's up to here. He's barely able to breathe. Helicopter comes down. They throw the rope down. Hold on. We'll pull you up. We'll save you. I don't need it. God's going to save me. Boom. Right after the helicopter disappears, the guy drowns. Soul goes to be with the Lord. Says, Lord, why didn't you help me? I pray. I believed. You didn't do anything for me. Lord says, my child, my child, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What more do you want? You know? So, yeah, they're doing signs and wonders in this town, but when they find out that the bad guys are going to stone them, they just kind of walk out of town. And they go down to the next city, which is Lystra. And then we go from hatred to the other extreme. People want to worship Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. It shows you how crazy that God-shaped vacuum is, the way people want to fill it with something. Look at verse 8. Paul and Barnabas refused to be worshipped as gods, lowercase g, as the Greek Roman um, religion tended to think of gods, uh, in Lystra. At Lystra, a man was about 20 miles outside of Iconium, south of it. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This sounds a lot like Peter and the guy, Peter and John and the guy outside the temple. This really happened. Luke isn't making this up. He's just pointing out that Paul's doing the same kind of miracles that Peter did. Paul's at the same apostolic level as Peter. No problem there. Uh, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke the gospel who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be healed, he was a believer now after hearing the gospel, with a loud voice said, stand upright. You never stood on your life, but stand upright. And he leaped up and began to walk. Uh, I'm not sure how the what the engineering is, but little kids you know, can kind of do this deep knee bend and have their rumps almost on the floor, and then they can just go straight up again. And I can't, I used to be, I guess I could do that when I was two, but I can't even, I can't even read putts anymore. My knees are so bad. So now I have an excuse, you know, uh, which I didn't have before. But yeah, this guy had never walked in his whole life. And supernaturally, this is a class A miracle. The guy leaps up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they, they raised their voice and sang in the Lycaonian language, which is one reason Paul and Barnabas weren't sure exactly what was happening at first when they're starting to worship them as gods, lowercase g. The gods, lowercase g, have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling, this is so funny, they began calling Barnabas Zeus. Okay, what do you know about Zeus? Clay, you've had some, you've had some great Greek or Roman pagan training, haven't you? Mythology? No. You're a homeschooler. You're supposed to know everything. That's Zeus. Zeus was the king of the gods, and he he kind of threw the thunderbolts down. And they called Barnabas Zeus, and they called Paul who? Who'd they call Paul? Hermes. We know him better as Mercury. He had the wings on his cap. He was the messenger boy. Okay. Now, what does that tell you? What do you think Barnabas looked like? Barnabas looked like the stud. He looked like the linebacker. He's tough looking. Paul was a little runt that talked a lot. Okay. Now here's what here's something that was just discovered about 20 years ago. They've dug up some secular literature, and there was a legend that in this city about 20 years before this, that Zeus and Mercury had shown up in human form uh, like beggars and had tried to get help. And the only people that would help them were two very poor elderly uh, people, an elderly couple. And so they may be thinking, oh, they fooled us the first time, but we're ready now. 
That's got to be Zeus and Hermes. I mean, definitely. So let's, let's worship them. So look what happens. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their robes, it was a sign of mourning and shock and horror, and rushed out into the crowd saying, Men, hey guys, knock it off. Why are you doing these things? We're just people like you, the same nature. And we preach the good news to you that you turn from these vain things, believing in human-like, superhuman gods and having to worship and be saved by your good works, uh, to a living God who's actually the creator of the universe, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Uh, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he never left himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rain from heaven. Fruitful season, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Uh, but even saying these things, with difficulty, Paul and Barnabas restrained the crowd from offering sacrifices to them as gods, lowercase g. Wow. Isn't that wild? In one locale, we have murderous persecution, and now we've got, uh, you know, uh, theological praise. And I've got to tell you, for ministers... Uh, persecutions ruined a lot of ministers, but too much praise has probably ruined a lot more. Paul understood that celebrity status, godlike status, should not be sought or accepted by any Christian, especially those uh, involved in public ministry. So what have we seen here? We saw the gospel always is going to have opposition. Uh, we saw that uh, non-supernatural means like just getting out of a bad situation. Uh, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do, if you see some bad dudes selling stuff, smoking stuff, doing stuff they shouldn't do up there, the best thing is to cross the street and go the other way around. Uh, if God specifically puts an angel on your shoulder and says, go get them, boy, you go get them, boy. Otherwise, I'd say go around the other side of the street and just avoid it if at all possible. Right? A lot of times, uh, uh, it's your friends that will make you or break you. I haven't said this in a while, but hey, young folks, your parents, you know what? They'll probably never be cool. And sometimes they're not even right, but they're always going to have your best interest at heart. And some of the kids at your school are not. They're never going to have your best interest. Now, at your school probably, but... but uh, some of the cool kids do not have your best interest at heart. Right? You can say amen to that if you want to. Uh, uh, take this to heart. Uh, two things. Let me close with two principles. Every believer is unique and special, but the only true celebrity, capital C celebrity, for Christians must be our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Christian, capital C, universal body of Christ, all believers of all denominations, church in the lowercase C Church, local churches for us, Tanglewood Bible Fellowship Church. The church is for you and me, but it's not about you and me. Which among many other things means my personal preferences and your personal preferences are not the overriding priority of the church. Let's think about that for a minute. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, Christians over the years become disappointed, disconnected from their local church. Uh, because they become so obsessed with Christian heroes 
that are 50 miles away or 100 miles away or 1,000 miles away. They'll never meet them. They'll never know them. They'll never see them in a weak moment. Uh, they'll also never see them at a hospital surgery or a wedding or a funeral. But they become so obsessed with these heroes they have that they look down their nose at all the local ministers because we're not nearly as good as those other guys are. And we probably don't have all the gifts of these guys. Now, you've got some famous and infamous ministers here. Uh, that's Joel Olstein, in my opinion, has very weak uh, word faith theology, very misleading. That's Mark Driscoll, who resigned in disgrace from a 25,000 megachurch in the Pacific Northwest for doing some really slimy things, including taking $200,000 of the church money to buy uh, through second parties copies of his book so he could maybe have a New York Times bestseller. Uh, that's Ted Haggard. I think you know about him. Uh... That's Craig Rochelle, that's Chuck Swindoll, that's Billy Graham's son-in-law. I can never remember his name, it's odd, but he resigned in disgrace. But if you're big enough, some other parachurch will hire you. If you're a local pastor and you do half the stuff they do, you're done. Uh, Billy Graham, he's perfect, right? He's not perfect, and I admire Billy Graham, and and Chuck Swindoll particularly for me, are people that uh, I look up to, but I would never worship them. Uh, Part of that maybe is having gone to Dallas Seminary, the first time Debbie and I went to Dallas Seminary physically to try to sign up right after I dropped out of dental school, and it, we missed the deadline by two weeks, so we had to wait a year. Uh, we walked down the, the hall of this uh, academic one, and on the door it says, Charles C. Ryrie. Anybody have the Ryrie Study Bible? The guy that published and did the notes to the Ryrie Study Bible, he's right behind that door. His name's on that door. And then you go to Robert Leitner, and you go to J. Dwight Pentecost, and John Walverd wrote all the books about the prophecies and stuff, and you have all these names that are so famous in, in my circles, and you get them, and you're kind of awestruck, and then you meet them, and they've got strengths and weaknesses, and they've got uh, insights, and they're kind of clueless about other things, and you realize that they're kind of like me, you know. Um, so just beware of putting somebody, even somebody you admire greatly, who's been a big blessing in your life, but somebody you'll never meet. Beware of putting them on a pedestal, like assuming that they're perfect. And so, you know, Goofy James or Goofy Brad, uh, you know, just can't possibly match up with them. Uh, do you realize when you listen to the newest, your favorite Christian musician's newest album, do you realize when you hear that song you love so much, that's like the 50-second take of that song enhanced with studio effects. I mean, James and the worship band don't sound anything like my favorite Christian band. What? If you had the Christian band up here and unhooked them and just threw them up there and have them sing some of the stuff that they never sung before only a few times, they'd sound probably not as good as our worship band. I'm not saying anything about the worship band. I mean, you realize all your Christian experts, you only see them at their be- at their best. You know, guess what? If, if Chuck Swindoll gets halfway through a message and forgets something and says something stupid... They're not going to put that on the national radio, Brian. Don't, don't use that one. Let's just use the good ones. And God bless Chuck Swindoll. I think he's a great guy. He's a, a great teacher with no guile as far as I know. But if you think you know those guys, you don't know celebrities. Are you kidding? Uh, if you can't touch them and see them get frustrated and see them uh, uh, weep when some, when they're weeping and rejoicing when they're rejoicing up close and personal, you don't, you don't know them at all. Beware of that. The only thing worse than that is putting Christian ministers on a pedestal, kind of like the pagans were wanting to do with Paul and Barnabas here. 
I think worse than that is what I would call the Josh Duggar syndrome. And I have no joy uh, from kicking dirt on Josh Duggar. If you know who he is, fine. If you don't, I'm not going to go into the details right now. But I will say this. You know, what happens is, you know, if you if you really overemphasize Billy Graham or Chuck Swindoll, it's probably not going to be a fatal thing. You're going to look down your nose at, at other local ministers some. But we're used to having people not take us for granted. You know, take us for granted. So we're used to that. It's not that big of a deal. Anyway, but it's probably not as bad as when you, you know, you, you just kind of lionize some of these people. And then you find out, like the Duggar family, you find out, oh, my gosh, just Duggar did this, that, and the other. Uh, this can really uh, ruin a lot of people's spiritual lives when they find out. I mean, Bill Gothard was kind of kind of sexually horsing around with people in his uh, office with young ladies. Yeah, he was, you know. Uh, does that mean everything he ever stood for is wrong? No. You know, somebody could say, uh, don't murder, don't steal, but uh, that's their message. Don't steal, don't steal, don't steal. While they're stealing from their ministry, would that mean what they said about not stealing is a bad thing? No, I mean, it's true, you're not supposed to steal. The problem is their message and their life didn't line up, so they really aren't in a position to say that with integrity, right? But, uh, yeah, I would say when you lionize these people and put them on a pedestal, and many of them invariably will fail you in some kind of crash and burn, if that's your object of faith, guess what? you got nothing to believe in anymore. Don't put your faith in the most current, Christian musician or pastor or conference speaker, they've all got feet of clay, just like Abraham, Jacob, Judah, Saul, David, Solomon, everybody else, Peter, everybody else in the Bible, right? So the only legitimate celebrity, capital C, in the Christian life is Jesus Christ. And then just to close, I would say, this is a great thought, the, the Christian church, capital C church, the body of Christ, lowercase c church, First Baptist Church, Bethel Assembly of God, First Presbyterian Church, Tanglewood Bible Fellowship Church is for you and me, but it's not about you and me. It's about somebody a lot more important than you and me, right? About the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, TBF, TBF is us, but it's not about us. It's about someone a lot bigger than us, right? Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this story that tells us uh, that uh, Paul and Barnabas just would not stand or tolerate being uh, worshipped or being put on a pedestal. And uh, forgive us sometimes for thinking the ultimate good in life is impressing other people and making sure they like us and making sure they think we're really cool and smart and spiritual uh, because when we do that, we're focusing not on you but on them. Uh Forgive us for lionizing some of our Christian heroes and then being so disappointed and disillusioned if it turns out they're not perfect. In fact, none of them are anyway. Uh, Help us to realize that God-shaped vacuum has to be filled with the Lordship and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart, said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I have blown it. At my worst, I break my own standards, much less your standards. And so I'm guilty, and I can't fix it. I can't be good enough to make up for what I've done wrong before you. But I believe you loved me. Christ died to pay for my sin debt and rose again from the dead. And I embrace him with my whole heart as my Savior. As a believer, I want to love him as my Lord. And I want to make a difference in this world as you allow me to do that. So I pray for all of us, Father, that we would worship you. 
God alone, you alone, the triune God, the creator of heaven and earth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.